Hello and welcome to Talking Capital. I'm Ian Barnard, CEO of Capital Generation Partners, and I'm here with our Chief Investment Officer, Robert Sears, to answer three questions posed by our clients in recent weeks. For those who don't know us already, CapGen is a private investment office for families with capital. We are go-anywhere investors, so in the course of these episodes, you can expect us to cover any question across any asset class in any region of the world, from bricks and mortar to portfolio derivatives. In summary, this is a podcast where we answer the questions playing on the minds of sophisticated long-term investors. Do subscribe if that sounds up your street, and you'll enjoy two episodes a month of Talking Capital. We talked last time about the known unknowns of the Q4 earnings season. We didn't know what they were, but we knew they were coming. And they're now largely no knowns. So we know what we know. And the headline, as we probably all saw, was that Meta, formerly Facebook, saw its stock valuation climb, something in the region of $200 billion, which I think in anyone's language is a huge, huge sum. And that became a personalized story when the fortunes of Mark Zuckerberg, which are clearly on the up, were then contrasted with those of Elon Musk, uh, whose Tesla had a much tougher ride during the earnings season. But clearly, lots of other companies have reported, including uh, the formerly very valuable banks, which were the darlings of yesteryear. Um, So, Robert, what have we seen so far? What's the earnings season told us? Well, I think as we sort of trailed when we were discussing what might happen. Um, It is a a story, very much a a two-sided story. There's big tech, AI, and the rest of the economy. Um, And even on big tech, I think it did, uh, the overall headline is the earnings were extremely good. It's sort of in aggregate. They continue to churn out um, sort of record high numbers. But um, I think it does mask the beginnings of maybe some some doubts. I, I think when when we uh, when we start to to break it up. So the first thing we did mention about Magnificent Seven and draw the analogy back to the film, um, and suggest uh, a couple of the uh, or at least two or three of the the, the protagonists might not make it. Uh, and in the same way with the Magnificent Seven, it is no longer seven stocks soaring uh, way up high, um, as we've seen. Tesla actually is is having a bit of a difficult ride this year, down quite a significant amount in terms of stock price and also all the controversy and uh, problems with Delaware courts about Elon Musk's um, package of compensation. So we're starting to see it's not just one monolithic story. There are the winners in that big seven, and I think notably it is Meta, Amazon, and uh, NVIDIA uh, continuing to soar high. There's a bit of sort of so-so performance for Apple and uh, Google, so some good numbers. But at the heart of it, actually, we've, we've got to recognize the growth of AI is not good for, for Alphabet and a number of their different um, business lines. So there are a lot of challenges that they face into the future, even though it remains a very strong business. And Apple, there are some good numbers in there, but some disappointing revenue numbers as well. So again, it's the stock price is struggling to um, sort of take take off from here. So the market is becoming increasingly concentrated. So not only is the earnings concentrated, the market stock price performance concentrated. Last few days uh, around this recording, we've had the S&P up a little bit, um, but it's been a record in the sense of it's the fewest number of stocks that were up on a day when the S&P is up 1%, because that 1% is driven just by a handful of names. Um, so we the, the concentration is not typically 
um, a good thing to see. Even when we look at some of those good numbers, I think it's you start to question maybe some of the the, the extent of which how, how long uh, this run can continue. So NVIDIA is actually funding a lot of investments in AI startup companies who are the very purchasers of a lot of the, uh, the, the, the chips or products that they design and produce. So there, there is, in a sense, maybe some doubt about uh, the, the reality of all the earnings. Equally, um, some of it is down, some of the record earnings are down to accounting tricks in terms of, uh, or well, be careful with that term, but accounting uh, maneuvers about um, capital spend on a lot of the data centers that are being used. So extending the life of some of these assets is helping earnings to be higher than uh, perhaps um, they, they would have been otherwise. So I think we've got to look through it. Yes, the data, the earnings have been very strong, but it's not all in one direction anymore. Um, and the winners are becoming so um, concentrated. So it is a bit uh, a bit of a careful story. And at the same time, the other half of the story, um, when you remove those stocks, the AI names, actually earnings year on year, as we suggested, are down across a lot of companies, even in the US. Uh, we've heard some difficult um, earnings come out of some of the banks, particularly the banks that had taken on some of the troubled assets last year. So they still remain two big sources of concern in some of those regional banks. One is the, the commercial real estate loan books. And there we're seeing a lot of pressure. So a lot of impaired commercial real estate that is just coming through to the surface. So transactions are happening now, which are wiping out equity holders and impairing a lot of the debt uh, in a number of areas. So there's, a, there's there are a large amount of impairments to come on commercial real estate. And secondly, with bond yields uh, starting to spike up again on the back of some of the the, the twofold, the better data in the US, uh, which some of it is better, um, but also the Fed talk, as we suggested, actually pushing back a bit against six rate cuts for the year. And the probability of a cut in March has gone from almost certain to now uh, very low likelihood of happening. The market is realising that actually the cuts aren't going to happen. And again, that's that's a headwind, and it's a headwind not only for higher financing costs, but specifically those banks, a lot of the um, assets in terms of um, bonds that are on their book. Uh, again, higher rates gives a bit of a problem. So I think it's it's too much of a story to say it's all good news. It's, it's very concentrated and differentiated, and I think that that continues to be the message, really. To, you need to look through the surface to see what's going on. But I would say... So far and away, Robert, pretty much what what we've been talking about. So the, you know, as, as we've talked about here, the magnificent seven or six or eight or whatever it's going to be are you know extraordinary companies and and others that don't have the good fortune to fall in that bracket. There are some extraordinary companies out there that are incredibly dynamic. They are beginning to compete with themselves, and there is a question about you know what they're worth. We've talked a lot about that. We've also, I know, touched on the commercial real estate lending loan challenges, uh, you know, particularly in the US, but not exclusively, and the question of the extent to which that becomes systemic or whether it, you know, is able to be sort of contained and and cauterized. I guess my question would be, Robert, is there anything that took us by surprise? So as we look through the earnings and what lies behind that? Was there anything that you looked at and you thought, oh gosh, no, didn't see that one coming. That's a surprise. Um, I think on the earnings, not 
Not so much so far. I think, to be fair, the data in the US does look pretty strong. And it continues to look stronger than I think I was certainly anticipating. And when we look in particular at two things, I think there is that chance of the manufacturing cycle turning up. That's one thing we did flag. Manufacturing services got out of sync and there's potential for that bottoming. So that some of the data suggested that. And I think the other part, actually, if we look at the senior loan officers survey, again, that had been pointing to contraction, the recession that was meant to come. Actually, the last set of data, if anything, the loan officers were starting to be feel a bit more optimistic and were um, sort of being uh, opening the spigots again. So again, that potentially is pointing to better liquidity. So I think that's certainly something to take up and take notice to and could suggest the economy is more stronger than we'd anticipated. I think the one cautionary tale against that, and this is why we mentioned this sort of battle, this uh, reflexive dance between the Fed and the market, is that very much so, the better the data is going to be, actually that's then pointing to inflation potentially rearing its head again, which is going to push back against rates going higher. So I think, yes, potentially the economy in the US is stronger than, uh, and some of that is a bit more of a surprise, but it does pose the problem of what then happens to monetary policy, how, where will rates go? And rates going up again is, is a vulnerability that the market will have to face again in the future, if that is the case, if we have strong economic data. Changing direction a little bit, Robert. So uh, we, we all know from... Uh, I guess behavioral and anthropological research, and just our own experience that you know, as humans, we we look for patterns. We're always on the lookout for explanatory factors, and if we find an explanatory factor, we take huge comfort from that because then you can generate a system and a rule and rules and give you an illusion that you you can forecast and you know perhaps control what's going to happen in the future. And I think that's a bit how you know I think we see the trusty 60-40 equity bond portfolio, which, you know, in the round for a reasonable period of time has been a pretty decent system uh, and has given us this sense that we can navigate the future in safety because we have a a system that works. Uh, But it's had a pretty tough time recently as interest rates have finally, finally, finally come off the bottom and started to go up and then possibly down again. And that's had a big impact on bonds, which become you know a, a, a more volatile asset than perhaps they have been, and one where the future direction of travel might not be as positive as it's as, as it's been. And we, we we've talked a, a lot about this, but I think it's worth returning to as we, you know, at the start of a newish year or near the start of a of a new year. So if if sixty forty is no longer a good system. Do you think its time is over? Is, is there still value in using that as a as a framework, or is that something that we should just put aside? So I think it's very difficult to make blanket statements one way or the other. So say sixty forty is dead. Um, it is dependent on your starting point. I think that's the important point. So starting at the beginning of the nineteen eighties, when you have interest rates as high as they were. It meant that the the forward-looking returns for both equities and bonds were really strong. And that set in place the next um, three decades of a really good period for 60-40, or in fact, any mix. But to have bonds in that period generating high 5%, 6% real returns and being the diversifying asset uh, was the perfect setup for a 60-40 portfolio. I think what we know where we start today 
is that setup is not the same. So to think you're going to have the same outcome, I think that that starting assumption should be definitely challenged. So starting where we are now, yes, yields are a bit higher, so you've got better expected return from bonds. But equities, particularly if you're a US investor and it's US equities and bonds, US equities look very expensive at the starting point. So you, with that type of portfolio, 60-40, firstly, it's not particularly a balanced portfolio. We should always remember equity risk dominates the risk because it is more volatile than bonds. But equally, it's not something that's going to get you easily to your 4%, 5% real return target or a 7% nominal target. Starting from today, that's actually a difficult challenge. So I think that's, that's the first um, factor number one that needs to be recognised. Now, 2022 was a microcosm of what can go wrong with 6040. It was the worst year for 6040, really, or one of the, the, the top 10 worst years in the last 100 um, for that type of portfolio. And that's the problem when you start with interest rates so low. That's the vulnerability. Now, I think why is 6040, again, maybe a more dangerous place than the last 30 years is in times of crisis, bonds are not always the protective asset. Again, we think they always are. But that's not always the case. So bonds protect well in a deflationary bust, deflationary environment. And they can, yields can fall in a recession anyway. But over long periods of time, in an inflationary environment, bonds can actually be risky. They can really suffer, not like they did in 2022 from interest rates going up. That's one way they can suffer. But it's from loss of purchasing power over a long period of time when you have a period of rising inflation. An example being 1950 to 1980. So the preceding 30-year uh, period was actually 60-40 was not the way to go in that period. Um, bonds was not were not the diversifier. So I think if we think the future looks more inflationary, and certainly there can be inflationary periods and inflationary shocks, you do the assets that protect you in that period are inflation-linked real assets. Uh, an example being commodities. Commodities were the protective asset in the 1970s, not bonds. So when you're approaching a, a multi-asset portfolio, I think having that mindset that maybe some of the bad scenarios are inflationary, you need to diversify your portfolio more broadly than just equities and bonds. That is a portfolio that will not do well and protect you against rising real assets, will not protect you particularly against rising inflation. It will, will to a certain degree. So I think if inflation is your enemy, you need broader diversification. So I think those two broad factors, starting points, not as good for 60-40, and you want broader diversification, certainly remain true. Now, there can be periods where 60-40 can resurge again. And I would say if the deflationary risks rise, if interest rates go up sufficiently high, there'll be a period where 60-40 could be useful. So it's not that it's gone forever and it doesn't work in any circumstance. But I think if you want a portfolio to protect you against the range of outcomes that are more likely in the next 20, 10, 20, 30 years, you do need to, to think about an approach which has broader diversification, which looks at a broader um, toolkit of assets and probably has less bonds, I think, at the heart of it has less duration risk, less protection against deflation is probably the way to go um, for, the, for the future period. So bonds had this double benefit for portfolios during the period you described, Robert. They had the benefits of themselves as an asset class in and of themselves. They were a low volatility, relatively uh, positively returning asset. Why? Because you had the coupon on the bond. Uh, and in addition, you have the capital gain as yields in the round went down. So bonds as bonds, 
looked attractive because you were getting more from them than the coupon might have suggested. Benefit number one. Benefit number two was that in that period of falling rates and with that obviously falling inflation or falling inflation and falling rates, depending which way the causation goes, they were really, really good tactical hedge for equities. Both asset classes generally were going up in this period, but at moments when equities are having a bit of a tough time, bonds tended to do relatively better. Both were doing well, if you like, strategically, but tactically they were balancing each other. So bonds had this double benefit. They were higher return than you might have imagined because you were getting capital gain as well as coupon. And within a portfolio, they had that beneficial tactical hedging impact to to an equity portfolio. And you're saying, watch out, both of those no longer need apply. They might apply it. The returns are going to be muted by the fact that interest rates have either bottomed and are going to stay low and bounce around or possibly uh, rise. And on top of that, you, you've got the fact that there's no longer going to be the, the, the capital gain there. So how do you think about bonds in a portfolio? And you said, let's not Let's make sure you've got real assets and inflation hedges there as well. Equities need to be there to drive the returns. But in this new world, how do you conceptualize bonds? Are they purely a tactical asset? Is there any sort of strategic value in having them in a portfolio? What, what's, your, what's your framework? Yeah. So I think if we separate out bonds into what they do and the purpose of the portfolio, if we're talking about pure duration risk, so protection, you want the, the bonds which have the lowest credit risk. So those are typically government bonds of the highest credit rating. So if you're in dollars, it's the US government um, or German bonds if you're in euros. That's your, your sort of core protective asset. Now, the purpose of that, it can protect against a deflation shock. So the world is, is in a difficult period uh, and we've got de- deflationary forces, recession risk. If, inf- if interest rates start at even quite low levels, as long as they're not right at the bottom, uh, at, at sort of zero or negative rates, you can have a capital gain so they can protect you. So that's an insurance policy that maybe in the long run doesn't give you a return. So it's a policy like insurance actually should tend to be. So bonds in the long run have really only given about 1% real return. Um, so if you're thinking maybe negative or not 1% real return, but they have that nice property, they can still be useful as a small part of the portfolio. So I think that's that's one use. But when we say bonds, and this is the problem, is one reaction is not just, as I said, broader diversification can be different asset classes, but even within fixed income, uh, the universe itself has got wider and you then can use different tools to give you different protections. So the whole universe of floating rate notes, that's one way to protect you if you think they've got rising uh, inflation, keeping low duration protects you against um, rising rates. Private credit, again, you're taking illiquidity and complexity risk, maybe getting some extra spread and some some extra fees um, to, to get a higher return. So again, there are trade-offs with each of these, but they're, they're all high-yield credit. Um, that could be within a bond portfolio, but you've got to recognize it's not just the combination of some duration risk, you're then taking credit risk, which has some of the, the sort of default characteristics, the correlations to e- economic growth that equities do. So as, as long as you realize these other uh, components, yes, can protect you against those risks, but you are embedding extra risk within the portfolio. So I think that's, and securitized debt is another example. So 
within fixed income, you've got to look beneath the surface to see what the, each of the bits are doing. But the pure protection from sort of government bond duration risk, and then each of these other risks are ways to either add a return or try and mitigate um, some of the uh, some of the difficulties, the drawbacks of increasing rates or increasing inflation. And that's really how I suppose um, a portfolio, even that can just do fixed income and equities, you can still get that broader diversification. But there are better ways to protect against inflation. Inflation in bonds is one example within fixed income, but there are those other sources like commodities, futures trading managers, real estate, um, equities with pricing power that are probably better or other ways you should, uh, or natural resource stocks are other ways you should be protecting against inflation than just sticking um, to the fixed income toolkit, even if it's expanded. Turning to our final subject, Robert, let's talk a bit about China, a huge country and clearly a lot going on and generalizations always dangerous. But I guess there are a couple of sides to the China story at the moment from the point of view of an international investor. There's, if you like, the purely China story, which is, you know, how how is this large economy dealing with some of the resource misallocation that has taken place during its breakneck period of growth, which, you know, is it is it's China's problem now, but it's a pretty standard thing. And we saw this in in Europe and North America during the period of industrialization in the 19th and 20th centuries, where growth was punctuated by these very, very dramatic waves of disinflation, deflation, as as the capital misallocation of the last cycle was sort of processed through the, through the system. Uh, it generated a lot of pain and discomfort, uh, which history doesn't record terribly well, perhaps with the exception of the, the Great Depression. But there have always been these periods where fast-growing economies have had this moment where they just had to digest the capital misallocation that comes with a with a with, with economic growth. So that's the sort of China China story. And then you've got the China of the rest of the world story, haven't you, which is this geopolitical element where there is increasing rivalry and sense of differentness between China and the West and China and the US, particularly that you know was less the case Ten years ago, and the two are two are intersecting. So I wonder, Robert, if you could talk a bit about this situation at the moment and how investors are thinking about it and dealing with it. I think China's equity market is clearly at the at the teeth of uh, a storm at the moment. It really is um, sort of a difficult period of time. Year to date, small caps in China, you know, are in bear market territory just this year alone. So they're off more than twenty percent and suffering uh, large volatile daily moves despite some of the the policy talk that's that's going on to try and put a floor beneath the market i think at the heart of what's happened as you said ian it's there are economic problems china's facing in terms of an economy that that grew fast took on a lot of debt in a short period of time which often does lead to this misallocation of capital particularly real estate sector and as you work through that that period, you often have these uh, problems, both with the economy, but also markets afterwards. But also, it's been the capital flight of investors. Many in the US, for example, in the West, starting to think because of geopolitical risk, um, China's becoming uninvestable. So there, there has been a flight of capital out in the last couple of years. And we certainly see that in the performance 
when we look uh, over that period of time, China's underperformed, the rest of EM, India by a considerable amount, but particularly the US. We see the US market at record highs. At the same time, the Chinese market is off, depending on the index, 30, 40, 50% um, from the recent recent highs. The, the results of those those two provinces putting China into a relatively deep bear market, and it's not been supported as much because policy action has been the bare minimum rather than uh, the focus has been on trying to gear up the market or the economy. Actually, it's been more about resilience and trying to separate and uh, decouple in, or whichever whichever term you use. But really, China is trying to become more resilient and less dependent on the US. And that's actually more the political control and the rival with the US is a bigger focus for the leaders rather than trying to get the, the highest possible economic growth in the country. And while that remains the case, there isn't really um, uh, the, the, the protection, the floor beneath the market. And I think secondly, we should also think this isn't just the story of the last few years. If we remember back to 2000 to 2007, these big periods of bull market, bear market, and we're still arguably, we would describe it very much, you're still in the period of bull market since the GFC. Um, we're going through a regime shift, we believe, in the last few years, but you're still fundamentally in that same same period of time. That's been a decade or more now where the, the US has been the dominant factor and we're, again, up at record highs. If we look at the Shanghai Composite Index, uh, which has more of the old economy stocks in there, the big boom, the, the, the big bubble was in 2007. And the market in that period has never reached that high again over that period of time. If you look at it, actually, it's been in a sustained bear market since 2007. This is a long bear market. Now, it's had the peaks um, of uh, exuberance like 2015, where Chinese stocks sort of had one of their bubble periods on the back of another dose of policy stimulus. But actually, even that peak was nowhere near... um, the, the high of 2007. And the Shanghai Composite is still down about 55% from the highs it reached over that period of time. So again, I think this has been a decade where EM's underperformed, China's underperformed the US, and the US has done better. The, the companies we talked about in the first section are those that have been drive, driving the growth. So um, I think there's a long story as well as the, the sort of short-term problems of facing up to uh, misallocation of capital and uh, the, the geopolitical risks that are out there. Now, it's hard to catch the falling knife. You don't want to do it. I think it's not generally a good thing to do. You, you end up cutting your hand. It's better to wait for, for things to bounce a bit before um, taking taking a stand. And it's, secondly, also, it's really hard to sort of look through the geopolitical risk in many ways. I think there are proxy ways that you can... Uh, make the same play without taking on um, some of the geopolitical risk. But having said that, still, it remains, there is likely going to be some convergence between those two markets. And it could equally be US stocks underperforming as much as China um, outperforming. But when you get this big uh, differential in performance, despite all the problems the Chinese economy has and things like the demographic issues they're now facing with a and, and that's another big overhang for the future. We've had the benefit of the surge of Chinese workers, and now we're facing the problems of uh, the population starting to decline. Even so, one would expect those the difference between those two markets to converge um, in the future. So I think it is be cautious of the winners of the past as much as um, uh, thinking that the, the, the losers of the past are going to do a bit better in the future. 
likely mean reversion happens. It doesn't mean China is going to become the best performing market, um, but equally, it might not be the worst, and the US might not be the best in the future. And that's sort of the way that uh, performance generally tends to revert to the mean. So we've talked about reflexivity, this Soros idea, uh, which is really talking about feedback loops, how the actions of one group of people affect the perceptions and actions of another and how that feeds on itself. And when we look at China, I think you have a sort of feedback loop between offshore investors. So if you're an offshore investor, you might think China looks cheap, but that's only really going to be come true if other people come to the same conclusion, which drives the market up because you're the only person uh, thinking that China will is cheap, it will remain cheap because nobody else will come in and buy. So you've definitely got that sort of feedback loop between uh, within the international investor community. And then you've got, I think, another one, which is between the Chinese authorities and offshore investors, because I think there is clearly, if you're sitting in, in Beijing and looking at how you manage this wave of disinflation and digestion of misallocation of capital, one of your hopes is that international investment will will help. And if you feel that that's not happening, you might be more tempted to do something domestically, which could then make that look more attractive to, to outside investors. So there are these feedback loops going. My sense at the moment, Robert, is, is we're on a bit of a downward spiral. And we, and we can see elsewhere how that gets reversed. I would say, for example, in Japan, you've seen the beginning of a positive feedback loop where cheapness has been matched by people thinking it's cheap and indeed indeed acting on it. To sum up with a question, I think, Robert, I think you're saying to us, China doesn't at the moment particularly look like a buying opportunity because these feedback loops are rather sort of downward spiraling rather than upward spiraling. Yeah, I think when, when the momentum is this bad, it's a bit foolhardy to, to jump in when you don't have to. And there isn't the fundamental change. I think the, the problem also is a lot of those forces that are forcing China down are not going to reverse. So the economic change can reverse, there can be policy stimulus, but actually the geopolitical tension between the US and China is not going away. There'll be softening, there'll be hardening, but it looks like it's heading in a, in a difficult direction. And the world does appear to be this more um, multipolar world, um, and the less integration there is, um, I think the harder it is to to really make a strong case. And certainly, I think you can pick up cheap stocks that have been suffering in the emerging markets that could do well in this world of high inflation without fully taking on the Chinese risk. So there are risks that, or there are areas that you can get a similar cheapness, there are areas that you can get similar growth, and there are going to be areas that are going to benefit from playing both sides in a way and benefiting from trade with both regions. So I think there are, there are ways even within emerging markets. And that's what we've done with our portfolios is we've reduced the direct Chinese exposure last year, um, which is helping at the moment this year. Where we do have Chinese exposure, it's in the hands of an active specialist manager trading large liquid stocks um, who's able to be dynamic um, and uh, respond to the, the changes that are happening. And I think that's, that's the way you need to be at the moment. Having liquidity, being dynamic um, helps to capture... Uh, risk and allocate to other areas of emerging markets. Robert, thank you. Time is up. But I think there's a happy note on which to end, which is that uh, there's always opportunity. And we've talked recently about the 
medium-term, possibly, opportunity in emerging market equities where there are some fantastic businesses trading at very low prices that are untrammeled by some of the geopolitical challenges that confront similar types of companies uh, within China. So there's always opportunity and there's always ways of making money. So, Robert, thank you very much and thank you for joining us. You can subscribe to Talking Capital on all major platforms. Capital Generation Partners, LLP, is authorised and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority and is registered as an investment advisor by the US Securities and Exchange Commission. This podcast and opinions expressed do not constitute investment advice and do not constitute an offer to sell or a solicitation of an offer to purchase any security or any other investment or product. Nothing said during this podcast should be construed as an invitation or inducement to engage in investment activity. All information and opinions expressed herein are current as of publication and are subject to change without notice. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute research or recommendation from Capital Generation Partners to the listener. Capital Generation Partners makes no representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or of any of the information contained in this podcast. And any liability, therefore, including in respect to direct or indirect loss, is expressly disclaimed. Please note that the value of investments and the income from them can go down as well as up, so you may get back less than you invest. This podcast may not be copied, reproduced, further distributed to any other person or published in whole or in part for any purpose. Further information, including our privacy statement, can be found on our website at www.capitalgenerationpartners.com.